This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. The other day I was shopping for something online. I was looking around and it wasn't really serious shopping. I was just sort of exploring a few things and poking around. And then I found something that was interesting and I started doing a little deeper research. Well, that's neither here nor there to you. You don't care what my shopping habits are. But what I realized shortly after was that every website I went to for the next little while always had ads for that very thing. And it was not a common thing, but every website that I went to had ads for that thing. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not a coincidence. Some algorithm, some bot, some whatever has read what my computer has been searching for and is now directing advertisements specially to me. Well, on its face, that's fine. That's not really offensive, I suppose, but it got me wondering, so what else is being followed that I'm doing or that someone else is doing online? What else is being monitored? Alan Mendelson is a Montreal-based lawyer specializing in internet law. He joins me now to discuss this. Alan, thanks for doing this today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Scott. How are you? I'm, I'm wonderful, although I'm starting to wonder if I'm paranoid or if people really are following me. Well, maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it ridiculous? To, to, I mean, obviously we know this is happening. We see these ads popping up. But what? how deep does this go? How much stuff is actually being tracked on what I do on my computer? Oh, well, a significant amount. Uh, well, first of all, just so you know, you're not alone. Uh, I've had a pair of skis following me in ads for about a year now. Uh, I, and a tennis racket. There's, you know, a, a pair of skis and a tennis racket that'll tell you my, my sporting interests um, have been following me around. It, it's... <laughs> It's it's quite common in terms of those advertisements. I, I think there was a, a there was well I know there was a study done by the Office of the Privacy Commissioner in Canada that found that a good thirty to forty percent of ads that had been served up on a on a certain set of websites were what are called these behavioral advertising ads that that you saw you saw and I saw. So something clearly, this is not coincidental, something clearly is some algorithm or some person or some program or whatever is charting my actions. But how does that, how is that working? Sure. Well, it's, you know, funnily enough, it's not some weird algorithm out there. It's your own computer and your browser that are doing it on behalf of certain people. So what it is generally for them, I mean, there are several ways that it works. But you may have heard of something called cookies. Yes. So, so cookies are, li- for your, your listeners, cookies are little files that a web browser and a website will create and actually leave on the hard drive of your computer. They're very small, and, but they contain valuable information. So what happens is your surface, well, let's use my example since I'm willing to admit that it was the skis I was shopping for. Uh, so, so the... I was at Sports Experts website and I clicked on some skis and I looked at some skis and the Sports Experts website and its associated advertiser network placed this little information on um, my computer in a form of a cookie. So then when I was on some other site later, this advertising network, a sort of a third party that sells ads, recognized that I was still interested in the skis and they put this ad, let's, let's just say I was on CNN.com, which has ads, and they said, oh, it's time for, because CNN.com serves ads from our network, we're going to show Alan the ad for the skis that sports expert paid for. Now, I, of course, I understand what cookies are, and I think most people listening understand what cookies are, and that clearly does it, but it seems as though more and more and more sites that you would go to and I mean I'm talking legitimate sites we're not talking about the dark web here like legitimate sites that you would go to demand that you accept cookies or their website doesn't work anymore and, and, indeed now the, the threat that their website won't work anymore is is sort of an empty threat cookie the problem is with cookies is that yes they are mostly re- they are responsible for those ads that you're seeing but cookies do a lot of other Value, more valuable functions as well. 
So when you go to a site that you have to log in on and you've logged in on it before and it remembers you because you've logged on it before so you don't have to enter all the information, um, well, that it's a cookie that did that. So when you go to a site in Canada and if you're francophone and it serves you up the French version of the website, well, it's a cookie that remembered that the last time you were there, you chose the French site. So, you know, cookies do have a lot of valuable functions, but there's really is very few cases. There's a couple of cases if you're buying certain things online, but whatever. For the most part, sites will still work even if you refuse all cookies or even if you set your browser standards to refuse all cookies. Beyond the cookies, if I am browsing for whatever, and obviously the cookies are able to track and direct me to other things, how much should I expect that my server, my uh, internet service provider, whomever else is able to see what I'm doing? Well, that's a much broader question, Scott. Uh, you know, what can they see is everything. That, there, you know, there's no question that if they really wanted to, that your internet service provider or certain other governmental bodies, let's say, can absolutely track you, but they're not. I mean, I, I think we need to, you know, step back to paranoia in that sense, um, in that, you know, they are not watching you on a regular basis. There's no point, And it's just, it would take too many resources for them to watch everybody all the time. So that I don't think we have to worry about. Um, but yes, with respect to these ads, it's certainly happening because people need to make money on the, on the, on the internet. When you go to a very popular website that has, you know, a hundred employees or a thousand employees and is serving you up a lot of content for free, they need a way to pay for that. And advertisements is the way that they do it. Let me throw out another one. And again, maybe this is just high points of paranoia, but let's say, Alan, that your next door neighbor works for your internet service providing company. And it, it may not be your next door neighbor. It could be someone you went to school with or whatever. And they're not too busy one day and they're looking down their list of subscribers. And they go, oh, look, and Alan subscribes. I'm going to go check out what he looks up. Could that happen? Theoretically, yes. Uh, you know, there are ways around it. If you are really paranoid, you can use a virtual private network, a VPN, which will mask your um, browsing behavior. You can use a browser called Tor, T-O-R, which is a completely anonymous browser. Even certain well-known browsers um, have sort of, you know, safe modes or private browsing modes which sort of do prevent you being tracked. Uh, so there are, I mean, if you really are paranoid, uh, you know, you should use the Tor browser. That's really the best way for you to sort of avoid being tracked if you don't want to be tracked. Because the story here, and, and part of the thing that we're talking about, and obviously, you know, cookies and advertising and all that, that's, that's, that's fine, that's one thing. But there are a lot of people who are above the age of, I don't know, what, what age would you want to pick? 45, 40? Who... Computers have not always been part of their life. They've come sure. to computers because the computers have been developed and become part of the reality since they were kids who don't really get or understand what exactly is going on as soon as that wire leaves the house. Right. And so they look at this and they see this stuff pop up and they go, what is being looked at? Am I able to, could someone outside my house be picking up? You're saying it'd be pretty difficult to do that. Uh, yeah, I, I, look, don't get me wrong. In, in certain circumstances, it would, it's very easy. Um, you know, if you go sit in a cafe and use their Wi-Fi ah, network, yeah. for example, yep. uh, anybody with a decent piece of software and their own laptop sitting somewhere in that same cafe attached to the same network uh, can track everything you do. So that's, uh, you know... Um, People always ask me, you know, where should we really be concerned? And I always give that answer, is that when you're using open public Wi-Fi networks where you don't have to enter some sort of password and you just have to accept their terms and conditions and poof, you're getting free Wi-Fi sitting in Starbucks or the airport or wherever the case may be, 
um, those are the worst circumstances, and you should be very careful in those circumstances what information you're sending over uh, that network. Do you get the sense that, again, there is an age line, and I don't know where that age line is. I said 40. Maybe it's older than that. Maybe it's younger. That there is that the younger, the group below that really doesn't even think about this. They're so used to it that it's just part of the accepted behavior. Yeah, I'll, uh, yeah I, I think it is. Uh, you know, I, I think for the most part that the, let's call them uh, under 40s, or not, you know, under whatever, you know, who have lived their entire life online for the most part and do not remember a world without being online are just so used to the fact and they don't, you know, it, it manifests itself in many, many ways. It manifests, manifests itself in the information they post on social networks. For example, I mean, they are just, that's the way they live and they don't particularly care. Some of it may come back to bite them in the future when they look for a job, but for the most part, you know, they all live their lives online and, and privacy is, means something different to them than it does to us. Well, yeah, clearly with some of the stuff that we hear stories of people, uh, images and things they send to their friends, um, <laughs> <laughs> privacy is not always well considered, I suppose, is one way to say it. Um, last thing before I let you go, what is the law? I mean, you are you specialize in this area. What is legal right now for a government? Is it essentially, for people to understand this, would it be essentially the same as a phone for all intents and purposes, that if there was someone in the government who was wanting to tap or look into your internet usage do they have to have some sort of absolutely absolutely they can't just sit there and do it they would have to have some sort now you know let's speak of canada because you know in the united states some people you know if you remember the whole edward snowden situation yes yes part of that was that you know he believed that the government was just spying on the internet activities uh, and phone activities of the normal citizen without any having any necessarily um, you know reasonable cause to do so uh, there's a sort of a difference between spying and getting people's personal information and getting sort of anonymous information about what they're doing but you know in Canada you know there's no if you're not under suspicion for some suspected crime, especially since there has been a rollback of something called Bill C-51, which is the Anti-Terrorism Act, which had a very broad sort of we can spy on you powers um, that was passed under the conservatives um, that's been rolled back a little under the liberals. Since that has happened, you know, I don't think Canadians really need to worry. The average Canadian shouldn't have to worry that they're being uh, looked at by the government. Alan Mendelson, always appreciate you joining us. Thanks for doing this tonight. It's my pleasure, Scott, and I won't tell you that I know the answer to the trivia question, and I'll let your, you know, your listeners have the fun. Thank you, Adel. Uh, uh, thanks, Alan. Take care. <laughs> Take care. Have a great night. That is Alan Mendelson, who is a lawyer specializing in Internet law. This is, see, this is really interesting because a lot of people, and I really believe this, and you probably, well, you may or may not agree with me, there is an age, and I don't know what that age is, but there's a dividing line between those who have grown up with this level of technology in their life always, so it's just always been part of their existence, and those who have been the late arrivers or who, have, who computer life has been introduced to them partway through their life. And I really believe that wherever that dividing line is, and I really don't know what that age would be, that there are two different attitudes. The slightly older group, the group that would be above that, is generally more suspicious. They are the ones who generally, even now to a certain degree, are not as comfortable putting their credit card number online. They're getting more comfortable because you get used to it. But people who would be, I mean, you ask someone who's 20, 25, if they've got any issues with putting their credit card number online, no. If they have a credit card, no. they got no problem at all. That's, that's the way we do business. But also the idea that while things popping up like ads for things that you looked up and then all of a sudden those very things keep showing up on different and different and different websites, for some people that would be, wow, that's really convenient. And yet for others... 
as I say, it kind of looks almost like, well, who's watching me then? What algorithm? Now it comes from, again, it comes from cookies. We all know it comes from cookies. That's not the, that's the really basic, basic, basic part of it. But it's going to take time for a lot of people to actually, I think, to actually believe there is nothing nefarious about this. And some people will never believe that. Some days I'm not sure if I believe that. 50, 60 years from now, we may find out we're all being taken for a ride because everything is being monitored and everything is being kept and every piece of information is being stored away somewhere. I don't know. But right now, they say we're good. So let's take their word for it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. 35 years ago, Thriller came out. The song was on there. You know, as I'm listening to that song, I would deeply love to see my next guest up on stage dancing like Michael Jackson. That would be something to see. Ben Guyot, uh, host of the Ben Guyot Show here on 900 CHML on weekends and the longtime host of Comedy at Club 54. How is your Michael Jackson dancing these days? <laughs> It takes a lot of tequila to get me to do that, my friend. Yeah, you know, um, I'm always worried about injuring myself in delicate places doing the kind of things that he always did with the grabbing and the groping and the, that thing, that was always a giveaway to me. Something was going horribly askew. Well, you know, guys are doing it right now all over the world and they're all being uh, charged and fired from the job. So <laughs> yeah. Matt Lauer, he must have really done something wrong. Uh, his Michael Jackson dancing was really inappropriate, apparently. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, as I say, Ben Guy joined me, and the reason I wanted to have Ben on is because Ben is a guy who has been a not only a stand-up comedian himself, but a champion of stand-up comedians around here for years, again, with Comedy at Club 54. And recently, I have been noticing as I go on Netflix, but especially Netflix, but some other places as well, a resurgence, it seems, in stand-up comedy. A lot of specials, a lot of guys, a lot of women comedians showing up on Netflix in particular. Last night or two nights ago, I watched a new one by Brian Regan, who's a really funny guy. Ben, are we seeing a resurgence or is it just me? Is there a renaissance in the whole idea of stand-up comedy that kind of had gone away for a little while? You know, it's it's funny you ask me that because somebody at Club 54 asked me that last weekend. I don't believe that there's a, a renaissance in stand-up comedy. I just think that there's as, as crazy as this may sound, there's fewer good ones to choose from. Because, all let's face it, all the big ones are gone. George Carlin and obviously Bill Cosby for other reasons. Uh, and so there's not as many good comics, I don't think, out there. And the ones that we would have considered average maybe 20 years ago are now considered great, and that's why you're seeing them on television. I know that's a very cynical and kind of a lousy way to look at it, but based on my experience, uh, over the years, that's what I'm seeing. I wouldn't say it's a renaissance. I just say that, there, that there's less to choose from. Well, there was, I mean, the, look, there was certainly in the late 80s, maybe mid to late 80s, there was this golden age, I guess it sounds like anyway, when you had Jerry Seinfeld and Paul Reiser and Ray Romano and George Lopez and I'm on and on and on. I mean, even guys like, and I can't even believe I'm saying this, Sinbad, who got his own TV show. But all these guys... <laughs> And it was mostly guys at that time. I mean, Roseanne Barr was in that group, but who they all got grabbed up to be sitcom stars. And it seemed to leave this, maybe that's to your point, this giant void in the stand-up comedy world. So they weren't out there doing that anymore. Yes. And you know, and you know what else has kind of helped maybe stand-up comedy, which kind of goes against, against the grain of what I just said, is, is social media. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, they get a couple of laughs or a couple of hits on Facebook or YouTube or whatever. And the next thing you know, there's some more opportunities with all these, uh, like like you talked about uh, Netflix and things like that. There's more opportunities for comedians, again, that I, I, I don't consider great, average, but there's more opportunity for them. Whereas if we go back 20, 25 years ago, as you were saying, uh, there was great comedians because they had to work harder because there were fewer stages on the television stage. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, and I and I would have to believe too that to some degree, for a company like Netflix, where they are putting, I mean, there is a ton of stand-up comedy on there. It's cheap to produce. You could get a stand-up comedy 
hour and a half, and they're something people can watch, and it costs almost nothing to put that together. That's absolutely right. Uh, when I did the TV show, the, the contracts, you know, there are contracts that I still have to honor to this day if they go into repeats anywhere in the world. But today's contracts are buyouts. So Scott Radley auditions for the TV show on Netflix or whatever uh, specialty channel. Uh, Scott, here's your $4,000. That's a lifetime buyout of your contract. And that is why you'll see them 100 years from now uh, still playing on these networks, assuming they still exist. But the comedians of yesteryear, the ones that I booked and, and the great ones from the States, their contracts come up for renewal quite often. And that's why a reason you don't see a lot of them in repeats is because they have to be paid. Producers are cheap these days. They want to do everything on the cheap. Uh, look at reality television, same thing. There are not, though, Ben. There cannot be because it just doesn't seem like there is. There cannot be as many clubs, though, providing stages for stand-up comedians these days. At one time, you could go and find a stand-up comedy club in almost any city. It's hard to find them now. Uh, it is That is true, Scott, if you're looking for a full-time comedy club. But as far as open mics and, and single-nighters, there's hundreds of them. Still? Like in Tor- oh, yeah. In Toronto alone, there's got to be 20, 25, 30 of them. In New York City, Manhattan, there's got to be 40 or 50 of them. Los Angeles, same thing. There are tons of open mic stages, one-nighters, but the people who own those bars are cheap. They don't want to pay the comics, but they will give them stage time, and that's what everybody wants is the stage time. Is it harder today to be, I mean, you say there's not as many good ones, but is it harder today to be a stand-up comic because it seems anyway so many topics are off limits? Uh, I would think so, yes, I would say so. Uh, today, and this is just my opinion, but a lot of people can't take a joke. We, we've forgotten how to laugh at ourselves, and the only people who seem to get away with it are, are like the Russell Peters of the world. I mean, he can make fun of not only East Indians, but he can make fun of blacks, Chinese, whatever, and nobody bats an eye. If Ben Guyatt does it, then I'll be in the newspaper for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> you know? Are there, but are there not still different rules in comedy clubs? There was a time when you could, all, not anything, but you could say almost anything if you were a certain type of comic. Is, are those days gone? Uh, I wouldn't say they're gone. It depends on the location. For example, if you're going to do a, a one-hour headlining set in downtown Toronto, you better be fairly politically correct because that's a very liberal town, right, where we're being polit- politically correct is, is the norm. The shows that I always like to do are the ones out in the sticks where five, six hundred, a thousand people show up in a big Quonset hut. <laughs> They see comedy once a year. These people are smashed out of their minds. They want to hear every filthy word you've got to say, every filthy joke. They love it. So it comes down to where you're performing. Uh, dictates what you're performing. But if you're now going to, and we're jumping around here, but if those, if that comic then were to do a special on Netflix or for someone else, again, to get the exposure, they can't then do their routine you're just describing because... Th- that would be the end of them if it's going to have a wide audience. You have to pull way back. Yes, and that, that's true today, and it was true of, of yesterday. Maybe not so much in, in yesterday, but or yesteryear, I should say. Comedians today who do great in a club that are blue, when they go to those auditions, they fail miserably because they're out of their element. They're not used to it. Uh, the Jerry Seinfelds of the world, you know, this what we're talking about has even affected him. I'm sure you know that he came right out and said, listen, I'm not playing any more colleges or universities because those kids are so PC uptight that even his clean stuff, they don't accept it. So part of the problem, too, is I think of the, of the baby boomers. They're not going to clubs. It's all the millennials and snowflakes, and, and you better not offend them in any way, shape, or form, or you're gone. And unfortunately, I think the television and even cable and specialty are following the same route. What about you? Do you go to colleges? Would you go to colleges? I used to. Uh, I don't anymore, and I won't. Uh, I'm in the same book as as uh, Seinfeld. Like, for example, I won't name the university. I, I, I played a university. It was about 5,000 students. And this was a couple of years ago. And I knew I was in trouble right away because I told an off-color joke. And, and I got booed by 5,000 people, which is wonderful. <laughs> and then the next act came up, and he made a joke about cancer, and they all laughed themselves stupid. And I just, 
I looked up at the stars and I thought, yeah, maybe my time has come and went. I mean, what is going on here? How can that be funny? And an off-color joke wasn't. So, uh, again, they were all, I'm not bashing the younger crowd. I'm just saying that their palate for comedy is a lot more restricted than, let's say, people of our age or our parents' age. Okay, so what is the magic now? If if we are seeing, for whatever reason, whether it is just because it's cheap to make, whether it's because we've got a new wave of comedians coming along, whether there's a new taste for comedy or a new desire for whatever the reason that it's getting, much, that there are more things being exposed on Netflix or other places, what's the secret now? What is what is considered when you watch all these? Is there a, a common denominator? Is there a secret formula to be funny today? Boy, yeah, that's <laughs> that's why you have a nightly show. That's a really good question. Um, and we'll spend the next four hours tra- breaking that down with a series of psychotherapists yeah. and comedians. You know, there's I, people you never see in the same room together. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, that, that is such a tough question. What makes somebody stand out? There's only two ways you can stand out today. I think one is by being so perfectly politically correct that you insult no one, or you go the totally opposite direction and you're so. Uh, racist and sexist and homophobic and Islamophobic, that there's a certain percentage of society that likes that and will come out and see you. So, But there's yeah. always, but Ben, there's always been a, a thing, a style or whatever. I mean, go back to the vaudeville days for those who are old enough to remember, or you've even seen video of that. And there was a delivery, there was a style of comedy and go through the fifties with, you know, the, I love Lucy show or, or George and Gracie, and there was a style. And then David Letterman, it was all very ironic. And then everybody had to be ironic to, in order right. to be funny. What is it today? How, how do you describe what is the, the comedy today? Or is there a description for it? Uh, there's two things I would describe. Uh, it's too, too subtle. Subtlety works, but when you're too subtle, it doesn't work. And a lot of these acts, there's, a, there's an old rule in stand-up comedy, Scott, get to the punchline every 10 seconds. Well, most of the comics that I see, it's a good minute, minute and a half, two minutes before these guys say something funny. Their setups are far too long. The audience gets bored. And that's why a lot of these guys aren't making it to the next level. Because if you go back and you look at all the comedians you've mentioned or you watch old reruns of Johnny Carson, it was bang, 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 bang. Because these guys only had five minutes. And so they really worked hard to get a good joke in every 10 seconds. But now on stage, I see these guys, they're telling personal stories, which could be funny, but get to the point. You ever on the side just screaming at them, punchline! Punchline! Well, yeah, and the crowd is even doing it sometimes, where they get impatient. And and I think that rule still applies. If you haven't got a punchline every 10 seconds, you're doing it wrong. So our streaming services then, and I, I've used the name 10 times now, but Netflix and maybe Hulu and Amazon, whatever, are these the savior of stand-up comedy because they need material and they're willing to pay to have these because they're inexpensive. Is this going to be the savior of that genre? I don't think so. If anything, it's going to saturate the market and ruin it. Um, If there's going to be a renaissance or a resurgence of stand-up comedy, it has to start at the most elementary level, and that's the club scene. Uh, Because people, it's too easy to stay home now and watch whatever you want to watch on your computer or your iPhone or whatever, television. Not a lot of people want to go out anymore. That is why I think stand-up comedy is going downhill. As far as as burgeoning new stars, because nobody's going out. Uh, The entertainment dollar, there's a lot of competition for it. A lot of people, you know, when every Canadian owes a buck sixty for every dollar they make, they owe that much. They're not likely going to go out on a Friday and Saturday night to go see stand-up comedy. The crowds are down. In stand-up comedy clubs, there's fewer stand-up comedy clubs. And I, I think that's one of the big reasons is because things like Netflix and cable television, and I'm guilty of that because my show is airing somewhere in the world right now. I'm contributing to the problem myself. I thought when you said the very basic level, I thought you meant like the kid in middle school who was the class clown. Just go watch him. He was always hilarious. Was That was probably you too, wasn't it? Yeah, to a yeah, to a point. Yeah, it was, <laughs> your teachers, uh, your teachers remember Ben Guyatt, I'm guessing. Even your grade five teachers. You know, my mother was my teacher. 
because she was a teacher and I was in the same school. So that's where I think I started the stand-up comedy bug was that I didn't want to get the hell kicked out of me on the playground for looking like a <laughs> teacher's pet. So I used to get in trouble, tell jokes, make faces, and that's where we were kind of all started. Hey, one last thing before I let you go. Is sure. it good? Is it good to have... I mean, it would seem like it's a great thing to have a program where everybody can watch it. Someone wants to pay you to make a program that goes on TV. That would seem to be great, except then, once that's done, you can never use those jokes again. You do it once, and now everyone has seen your act. You've got to come up with a whole new act if you're going to go back in the clubs. Outstanding point. That's right. And so, uh, unless you're like me, the only tapes I'll watch of any comedian that is worth his salt to watch again would be George Carlin, and we'll never see another one like him. Uh, again, to reiterate, producers don't want to pay. It's a it's a lifetime buyout contract, and you're right. You've seen these jokes. Why would you watch it again? So if you want to see fresh stuff, you've got to go to the clubs and to these open mics uh, that are that are popping up all over the place. They're only one nighters, but full time clubs like Comedy Club Fifty Four. Is, is, is truly a dinosaur, but hey, we're still going, so we must be doing something right. Ben Guyot, uh, Comedy at Club 54, and of the Ben Guyot Show, which I, I understand, you got a great tagline for it, the Guyot Riot, every weekend here on uh, 900 CHML. Tune in, give him a listen. He might even... Yeah, Common Sense Radio, 9 p.m. live, Sunday nights. Yeah, with with three hours every Sunday of live... Com- no, that's not what you do. That's uh, that's a different thing. Uh, listen, Ben Guy, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you so much, Scott. It is, it is an interesting thing. As I say, I've just noticed as I've been on Netflix, every day it seems there's another special or two or three, and it, it may have something only to do with the fact that it's really inexpensive to make a comedy special as opposed to something else. But obviously, they mu- people must still be watching this stuff too. Because Netflix, they won't give their ratings, but they do monitor who's watching. And somebody's got to be watching or they would stop doing it, you would think. We'll see if this is a the start of a new era of great comedy or just mediocre comedy that is cheap. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Tomorrow is a very big day. Once we move into December... The World Cup draw for the upcoming Soccer World Cup is going to be held. And I know one person who can't, he won't even be able to sleep tonight, I'm guessing, because of his excitement waiting for this to happen. Uh, That would be diehard Italian soccer fan Rick Zamperin. This is like Santa coming for you, isn't it? Scott, let me be uh, let me let me be quite honest with you. <clears throat> Ever since the Azzurri, which is the nickname for the Italian national team, was eliminated from uh, the 2018 uh, World Cup, I have uh, rid myself <laughs> of any knowledge whatsoever of the teams that are participating. And it, it's it's almost as if 2018 will not exist in my recollection. Would you like to know some of the teams that will be participating? <sighs> I won't, I won't share them with you. It'll just make you more depressed. Let's just I say... Know, I know of one, Sweden. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you do. There are a lot of teams in this thing, and again, I won't go through them all, and it's the way that they qualify, because if it was just on a straight qualification system of the top teams, Italy would yeah. be in there. But there are countries, and you go, how in the world are they there in Italy, is right. it? Yeah, like Egypt and, you know... Tunisia. Saudi Arabia, yep. yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, and, and you know... There's, the Maldives? There's, yeah. I don't think they're there. <laughs> no, 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 I don't think so. Uh, but interestingly enough, you know, Italy gets uh, eliminated from advancing to the World Cup. England advances to the World Cup. They're one of the teams that are going to be participating in Russia next year. Um, in the FIFA world, in the FIFA rankings, the world rankings, which rank the, the top uh, countries from around the world that participate in soccer on, on the FIFA stage... Italy, despite being eliminated from World Cup contention, actually vaulted past England in the FIFA rankings. So it's, and the rankings really aren't a true, uh, you know, indication of which teams or which nations have the best soccer teams. But it does provide you with a little bit of insight that it's not they don't have a perfect formula. They never will, because they're trying to make the game as inclusive as they can be. So yes, they want to draw, you know five teams from Africa, and they want to drive, uh, draw X amount of teams from North America and South America to make it a truly global game. I understand, you know, the the um, uh, the gist of that sentiment, but in the same light, <clears throat> this year in particular, you're, you're leaving a number of amazing teams 
traditionally strong draws, both in TV revenue and in fan support, out of the equation. And uh, who knows? In, in, in another four or five years' time, hopefully that changes for teams like Italy and the other big uh, big wigs that are not going to be there. But, uh, you know, this year just was not their year. Well, you know what should happen? The the Hamilton Tiger Cat, not the Ticats, it was at Tim Hortons Field. I don't, and they were sort of loosely involved, but there was supposed to be that friendly with... Um, well, who and Rangers. Yeah. And yeah. that all fell apart. Here, I, I'm going to help them. I'm going to give them their million-dollar idea. While the World Cup is on, mm-hmm. Canada should host Italy in a couple friendlies. Well, funny you mention that because, you know, the United States Soccer Association... Was they're not hinting, there either, too, right? Well, they're not there either, but they were hinting that, hey, why don't we have a tournament, almost like an NIT tournament, so the NCAA Final Four in basketball, why don't we have a tournament of non-World Cup nations and just have a little bit of fun? I don't think it's going to fly, because, you know, the teams that are not in it are really distraught that they're not in. <laughs> and it's just, you know, a trophy that you don't really want to play for. But, um, as I said, in four years' time, that, that should change with some of those teams. But, yeah, U.S. not in there. Italy, those are probably, you know, two of the biggest, uh, you know, nations not advancing to Russia. Yeah, it would be hard to imagine those teams, like, standing on the dais after they win that thing, jumping up and down, excited, holding their participation <laughs> ribbons. Yes. Um, yeah, not, not so good. But you you think... There would be no surer sellout ever in the history of sports than having the Azuri playing at Tim Hortons Field for an exhibition game. Oh, that would be, yeah. I mean, You, you could have, sell that place out Italian, nine times. You can have the Italian B team go, and it would sell out nine times. Uh, yeah, you, you, you put the major stars of Italian soccer in Tim Hortons Field, the BMO Field, at uh, Commonwealth Stadium in Edmonton, which has a capacity of 60-plus thousand, it would be packed. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what the Italian population of Edmonton or some of those places are. I don't. <laughs> yeah. But but here in Hamilton, and with the number of folks who follow that team and cheer for Italy, oh, you you would you could name your price on your tickets, and that place would be sold as I say, sold out over and over and over again. I I don't know how, um, as you say, they're a little distraught. I don't know how eager they are to come and play mm-hmm. in a friendly mm-hmm. while they're. Swedish cohorts are actually playing for something, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. I won't but, mention yeah. I won't mention Sweden again. I, I imagine I can hear you crying every time and barfing a little in your mouth every time you hear the word Sweden. Now I die just a little bit every <laughs> every every time. <laughs> uh, let us switch to a different brand of football, which is actually why I wanted to have you on here for a second, uh, because the football season we all know ended last weekend. It was a terrific Grey Cup, mm-hmm. lots of excitement, lots of good things for the CFL. Now everyone's heading into the off season where every team gets a chance to try and do what the Toronto Argos did, which was take a team that was not very competitive and turn it into a Grey Cup championship. They did it in less than one season. Why have the Ticats not been able to do that over the years? That's a phenomenal question. And we're still, I think, uh, you know, us uh, CFL pundits are are still trying to scratching our heads thinking, how did Toronto do this? I mean, this was a team that, yes, has a, a superstar, future Hall of Fame quarterback, has... Uh, you know, some really good players uh, on both offense and defense and on special teams as well. Uh, but they had an entirely new coaching, or not entirely new, but they had a new head coach, they had a new general manager that both came in, uh, you know, in February, just a, a couple of months before training camp was uh, to begin. Free agency was already in full swing. And, you know, they they kind of struggled with a 99 season. Yeah, they had some ups, but they had some downs as well. They, didn't, they certainly didn't dominate throughout the year. And they just, I don't know, it was, it was almost a ragtag bunch that kind of came together at the perfect time. You know, they come back to beat Saskatchewan in dramatic fashion at BMO Field in the East Final. And they come back in even more dramatic fashion, you know, in the snow of Ottawa to beat uh, the uh, two-time uh, Western champion uh, Calgary Stampeders. And I think we're still all looking at ourselves thinking, how did they do that? I mean, personnel-wise, they didn't make any humongous splashes in free agency their, their draft class isn't as great or better than any other team you know over the last several years it just all came together and sometimes that just happens but other teams are looking at that formula thinking you know we've had our coaching staff in place for for eons we've had you know stars at all these particular positions uh, how come we can't get it done i'm sure you know teams like uh, BC and certainly Calgary over the last couple seasons, and yeah, the Tiger Cats are looking at the uh, at the Argos, thinking, how do they just do that? Well, and it's not it's not a fluke, really. I mean, you could say it's a fluke; everything just came together. But 
Jim Pop, who was the general manager, and Mark Tressman certainly is the head coach, but Jim Pop especially, he's done this before. For the I mean, how many years? Now Montreal sagged in the last couple of years under him, but for how many years was Montreal, if not the class of the league, then right at the top somewhere? And that was always with him finding ways to make that team go. Yeah, and you know, it starts with more often than not having just the best group of Canadians. And you look at those Montreal teams and their offensive line, you know, they're all five Canadian kids that kind of grew together and, and were dominant together. And they had obviously a future Hall of Fame quarterback and a lot of excellent, uh, you know, players at other positions. Uh, and, you know, you look at this Toronto team and they had, you know, you look at a guy like Marcus Ball, who was almost not, not necessarily coerced out of the NFL, but I think his NFL kind of window had closed. And he knew that, you know, Toronto was a familiar place. He had played with the Argos. And Jim Pop, uh, you know, made the phone call and said, hey, do you want to, you know, we have a spot for you up here if you want one. Rico Murray is a great example, a former Tiger Cat who was, you know, looking for a home. Toronto said, hey, we have a spot for you. Cassius Vaughn, another Tiger Cat, who was kind of, you know, looking at his options uh, across the Canadian Football League. And, you know, a guy like Jim Pop says, hey, we can use you here in Toronto. So, I mean, there's a number of examples, both on offense and defense, uh, that Jim Pop and Mark Tressman said, hey, you know, this is a guy we've identified that can make our team better. Uh, let's go get him. And, and they did, and, and they were better for it. Do you buy the whole chemistry thing? The, the Argo players, especially in the wake of the Grey Cup, so many of them talked about how, oh, we love each other. Now, it's easy to love each other when you win the Grey Cup. Everybody loves everybody when you win a championship. But do you buy that? Do you think that's a big part? Do you think that Kent Austin or whomever is going to be the GM of Hamilton should be looking for chemistry as well as other stuff? Uh, I, you know what, I think that in any sport, that, that is a key ingredient. And sometimes you just can't find that perfect formula because you have guys who just don't get along or for whatever reason don't have that chemistry. I mean, they, they could be the best of friends, but they just can't play well together for whatever reason. Uh, I think that is a huge part of Toronto's success story this year, and I think that's a huge part of any championship team. If you don't have that locker room chemistry, if you don't have those, you know, the, the, your your teammates respecting you and not necessarily loving you, you don't have to be the best of friends, but knowing that you have each other's back, knowing that there's talent across the room from you or, or whatever the case may be, I think that's a, a humongous part of it because if you don't have that chemistry, guys quit on each other, they second-guess motives, uh, they're looking at uh, you know specific roster moves, where they line up on the depth chart, and it all comes back to you know resentment and trust and all those kind of uh, factors and, and conditions that you look at. Uh, if they're not respectable of each other and have that chemistry, they're they're just not going to be successful. There are two teams in the CFL. If you look, who are the ones waiting the longest to win a championship? Winnipeg is the long in the longest drought right now. Hamilton is behind them. Why has it been so difficult? If And I don't know if you know the answer, but why has it been so difficult for those two teams to get over the hump? Because even, and I know that people who are listening, because most of them are probably listening in Hamilton, so they just love it when we talk about the Argos in nice terms. But the Argos have three times since the Ticats last won a Grey Cup, have three times undone everything and then rebuilt themselves back up and won again. Why have the two teams that are in their longest drought not been able to do that? How about this? I mean, just... Just in the Argos case, uh, you've had uh, David Brelli as an owner, you have Cinnamon Sokolowski as an owner, Larry Tannenbaum as an owner. All three of those owners, new owners in the Bob Young era, have won Grey Cups. You look at Winnipeg, who hasn't won since 1990. In a nine-team league, yes. yeah. that is unfathomable. I mean, the odds of that are really astronomical, how they have not even got lucky one year and, and gone on a run and, you know, another team gets, you know, a major injury or they, they you know, hop on a fumble at a key point in the game and, and, you know, win the Grey Cup. It's unbelievable how they've not been able to put all the pieces together and, and find that right kind of formula. I mean, they've had wonderful players over the years, but they just can't get to that ultimate prize. And the Ticats are a great example of that too. You know, a, a series of coaches uh, you know, over the last number of years, they did have, you know, a lot of stability in the first four years of the Kent Austin era. They've had some uh, amazing players, future Hall of Famers on their roster since, you know, the last winning in 99. But uh, for a variety of reasons, free agency, drafting, uh, not retaining guys, trading guys at the wrong time, uh, not uncovering, you know, diamonds in the rough, not, uh, you know, uh, coercing uh, or enticing guys on your negotiation list to come up here and play the Canadian Football League game. Uh, there are all those factors and, and probably even a few more 
that just uh, have not computed into a, a Grey Cup championship for either of those franchises. So you wrote, what day was it? A couple days ago um, on your blog um, that the if Ricky Ray decides to retire from the Toronto Argonauts, yes. that Zach Caleros is as good as gone to the Argos. Uh-huh. Do you think you think that? I mean, obviously you wrote it. You think that is actually going to happen? That if he goes, Zach Caleros is the automatic, or basically the automatic fill-in. I, I think if the if Ricky Ray says tomorrow, that's it, I'm done. You know, I have my four Grey Cup championships. I've played umpteen amount of years. I'm going to the Hall of Fame. Thank you very much. I'm gone. Uh, I think the Argos look at their options and they look at Cody Fajardo, who's mm-hmm. you know a, a decent backup. McLeod Bethel Johnson, who might be an up-and-coming guy. I don't think they really know who, who he is yet. Jeff Matthews, who we know who he is. I mean, he is a really emergency fill-in, and cross your fingers that he might complete a few passes. And, and, and then you look across the league. You know, Brandon Bridge, I think, is an interesting uh, player for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. He's going to be your free agent. Saskatchewan might retain him. If you're looking at other guys around the league, Toronto's looking at Zach Caleros. They basically know what he is you know he's a pocket passer at this point ricky ray's a pocket passer uh he knows the system because marcus brady's still the offensive coordinator in toronto he's played in the market that market knows him you know he has a little bit of name recognition in that market especially with the football fans uh i, I think it's a fait accompli the other the other team in the mix would be the montreal alouettes and so now you have Saskatchewan, who's probably not going to retain Kevin Glenn unless, you know, he convinces them otherwise that at least he can be a backup. You have Toronto and you have the Montreal Alouettes, three teams that are looking for a quarterback because I'm not sold that Hamilton is going to keep Zach Caleros. They haven't played him in the last half of the season. June Jones is a Jeremiah Masoli fan. Yep, and all yep. the reports out of Hamilton is that Jones is going to be back. So, you know, and if I'm Caleros, I'm looking at Toronto, Saskatchewan, and Montreal, and I think the best fit for him especially off a championship season, is the Argonauts. I just can't fathom why the Toronto, why the Hamilton Tiger Cats would think to trade Zach Caleros to Toronto, knowing that he's going to then hook up with Mark Tressman, who turns right. every quarterback into a superstar. And you just know, if you're a Ticat fan, that if the Ticats trade Zach Caleros to Toronto, he is the most outstanding player in the Canadian Football League next year. You just know and- that's going to happen. And here's the rub. Because Caleros is under contract for one more season, here's the dilemma that the Ticats have. He, and a big contract. He, he, he's going to be the highest-paid player next season, unless they sign Johnny Manziel to an even higher contract. <laughs> but, but, but here's the rub. that He nearly has an untradeable contract. I mean, what team, knowing that Caleros hasn't played a significant amount of uh, any game for the last 8, 9, 10 weeks, and knowing that he was 0-8 before he was benched, how many teams are going to say, yeah, we'll eat that you know, half a million dollar contract uh, for a guy who uh, may still have uh, some issues with his knee, may still have some you know, concussion issues that he's had in the past, and, and is susceptible to another one? You know, what if you know, that happens? There's not a team in the league that's going to say, all right, we'll trade you for Caleros, we'll give you a draft pick or whatever the case is, and we'll eat his contract. What's going to have to happen is Hamilton is going to have to realize that there are no trading partners. We don't want to pay this guy his off-season bonus coming up. We're not going to pay him half a million dollars to sit on the bench again. We're going to release him. And that's when teams are going to jump in to say, all right, here's our contract offer for you. Let's get it done. And I'm telling you, I, I, I hate to be the pessimist in the crowd, but I just look at this and I think if he ends up in Toronto with Mark Tressman, this guy is going to find it again. I just I, Do you share that feeling or am I just standing alone on this one? Yeah, No, I, I don't think it's pessimism. I think it's realism. I think that Mark Tressman has, I mean, look at the quarterbacks he's worked with. Calvillo and Ray, yeah, they've had all the talent in the world, but he and, and he's had a wonderful track record in the NFL with quarterbacks down there as well. He just seems to get not only with quarterbacks, but he just seems to get the best out of each and every of his uh, every one of his players. And, and Zach Caleros would be no different. I think he would be easily in the top three uh, candidates for most outstanding player. He's got a lot of weapons there. Uh, he's got a good offensive line, good running game with James Wilder Jr. I think it is a match made in heaven for the defending champs. In the CFL, can you eat part of a contract? Uh, I've never heard of that. Um, like could could the could now it may not help because it's still going to be in your conference, but could the Ticats try to prevent him going to Toronto by trading him to Montreal and saying, "And fine, we'll take a hundred thousand or one hundred fifty thousand off that contract." 
Yeah, I'd have to look at the CBA. I haven't, and it may, it may exist with current contracts, but I haven't really seen that with any. any I don't remember deal, it. Really. Yeah, I yeah. don't remember it ever. It is, um, well, here's the other option, is try and uh, trade the rights to Johnny Manziel to the Argos mm-hmm. so that they don't have an interest then in Zach Caleros. That's another option, too. And then decide and, you're going to keep Jeremiah Mazzoli as your guy. Yes. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting scenario, too, because now you have a team who is going to be negotiating with a player who may not even be allowed in the league. <laughs> he still has to go through the, you know, the CFL protocol, whatever protocol that is that Commissioner Randy Ambrosi has set up. And if at the end of the day the CFL says, uh, Johnny Manziel, you're not, you're not allowed in our league because you haven't met these certain conditions, um, I guess once November 30th hits, which is today, I mean, yep. today is the deadline, uh, and, and the calendar flips to December 1st, uh, the Ticats and the CFL are going to have to come to some kind of conclusion to say, okay, where do we go from here? And if the decision is that Manziel can't uh, join the CFL, then that uh, that opens a few more doors, I think, for Zancaleros. There's also one other guy the Argos could have. Henry Burris comes out of retirement to stage a <laughs> glorious comeback with the Argos. Uh, yeah, he'd probably, he'd probably do well, too. <laughs> Under Mark play, Tressman, sure. you or I might do okay. <laughs> Rick Zamperin, always appreciate the time. Hey, listen, enjoy the World Cup draft tomorrow. Oh, wait, sorry, you're not going to be watching that. Uh, you're going to be grinding your teeth and uh, and drinking a Brio and um, trying to remember you know the what? good old days. I'll, I'll be honest with you, too. Brio, I cannot stand. Come on. No, I, Even I like yeah. Brio. Well, yeah, maybe you and I should change nationality. <laughs> <laughs> for, at least for this quadrennial, until Italy gets back into the World Cup, then you can, you're can you going to go back to it, I'm sure. There you go. There Rick Zamperin, always appreciate it. Thanks for the time, sir. Take care. That is, um, it's an interesting conundrum the Ticats have. It really is. Because Rick and I share the view, and maybe you do too. Zach Caleros did not play well last year. He was hurt before that. But the guy has shown that he has all the tools to be... He, I mean, when he blew out his knee a couple of years ago, he was on his way to being the most outstanding player in the CFL. If he goes to the Toronto Argonauts, whether by trade, whether by the Ticats cutting him and him signing there, if he goes to the Toronto Argonauts and gets connected with Mark Tressman, who devises a strategy, a game plan, to make him at his best, to make him his best, to give him the best opportunity to succeed, if he ends up with Mark Tressman... He is going to have a great year. I, unless he gets hurt, and that can happen. That's just football. But if he ends up with Mark Tressman, boy, that is a tough, tough spot for Ticat fans because he will, I really believe, he will be great again. And then now you've got yourself in a pickle because now your main competitor, your main rival, has a quarterback. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.